You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have Albert Liu. He's part of uh, the MIT research team uh, in the uh, lab of Professor Michael Strano, again at MIT. Prior to joining MIT as a presidential fellow, Albert had worked with the late Professor John Roberts on developing novel NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, spectroscopic techniques to probe functional group interactions. Functional groups are parts of a, of a chemical that have a function or interaction with small organic molecules. Uh, he spent two years in Professor Gregory Fu's laboratory learning reaction methodology development, and he developed a new method for the catalytic asymmetric synthesis of uh, alkyl boronate esters. Well, I got through that pronunciation, but excellent. So uh, he's got a pretty extensive background in the lab, and uh, what we're going to talk about today is how the lab of, you know, Strano's lab's working on cell-sized robots that can sense their environment. Interesting topic. So, Albert, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, first question, when you say cell-sized robots, uh, how big is a cell, you know, a human cell, for instance, and what are the dimensions of it, the, you know, the radius or the uh, other dimensions right. of, a, of a human cell? Right. Of course, you know, human cells vary in size, but the target we have in mind are approaching the size of a red blood cell which is typically with a diameter of 7 to 10 microns. So that's about 10 times 1 millionth of a meter. Okay. So uh, so you're trying to fabricate uh, robots. Are you trying to fabricate robots from tissue, from organic matter, or from, you know, uh, inorganic matter? Right. So uh, our target is to do this, uh, to fabricate this robot thing uh, using entirely inorganic matter, uh, the uniqueness, I, I would say. Yeah, there's like related fields uh, where making cells and engineering cells from a genetic point of view. Uh, so that would be taking up a biological cell and engineer its genetics in some way and have it have some spectacular functions. And this is different uh, in nature from what we're doing. And we're trying to build this from a synthetic point of view. Um, it's entirely artificial and there's no living component uh, of the cell per se. Yeah. All right. So you try to do entirely artificial. What would be some of the uses of uh, what you're creating? How would they work? Would they work right. only in the body, or would they be used in industrial applications? No. I mean, I, I think the advantage of having a you know sort of a dead or artificial system is that it can be used in a variety of different scenarios and environments. Of course, if you have something that is living, it typically lives in its you know natural environment, be it the human body or whatnot. Uh, but uh, it's 
something is you know inorganic in nature, where we actually are targeting a variety of different places, such as the human body, of course, but also within a chemical reactor, which is super hot, humid, and could be uh, very pressurized. Or uh, we can send them into like distributed locations, such as the soil matrix or nutrient detection and uh, oil pipelines or for these uh, sort of gas and other exploratory work. So a variety of different scenarios where it involves a sort of a inaccessible location previously, so to speak. Yeah. But why cell size then? If it's not going to be in the body, why? What's so special about that size? Is it just a nice uh, well, milestone so, to reach? Or yeah. So in terms of the human body application, of course, approaching the size of a red blood cell is super important because if you can imagine anything that is really larger than a red blood cell will be clogged in your bloodstream. So if you are right. imagining any biomedical applications within the vesicles of uh, the sort of the inner vasculature of human body or any mammalian system, it's going to be problematic. But of course, looking broadly uh, in the environment, there are a lot of places that is inaccessible to us just because that they are small, right? So like the crevices of the earth where people are like sending these probes into uh, trying to detect for oil and gas applications uh, or even just small chemical reactors. You know, there's, I think the there's a general trend in the chemical fabrication industries to distribute uh, the uh, fabrication of fine chemicals uh, into distant locations where we involve a lot of the, what is called a microfluidic device. So these are very, very small tubes and pipes and uh, valves where, uh, you know, like where the chemical fabrication can be enhanced because of its uh, enhanced uh, heat transfer and reactivity, uh, just because, you know, it's in a small sort of a high surface air to volume ratio uh, kind of thing. Um, but if you imagine trying to probe what is going on inside is just as much as difficult as to probe what is going on inside the human body. So uh, having it being cell sized actually is very, very advantageous for you know a variety of different applications. And of course, the human body is something that is of target. So what what are some of the challenges with fabricating um, you know little robots at that size? Right. So I think there are two uh, major branches of the challenge. And uh, the first one is of course energy. So if you think about it. If you want to pack our conventional electronics into the cell cell size, um, it's really not going to be able to hold much of a power. Thinking about conventional energy storage uh, ideas, such as like lithium-ion battery or supercapacitors. So energy is the first challenge. Uh, how do you power the system with incredibly small voltages or with very little juice in your device uh, for a prolonged period of time? at least, you know, through the span of your exploratory work. Uh, so energy is a great challenge for small electronics and uh, also the fabrication. Because, of course, we can fabricate today incredibly fine CPUs with, like, very, very uh, well-defined transistors and uh, other electronic stuff at extremely small scale. But if you were to distribute your electronics into the environment, let's say, you know, into the human body or even into the soil matrix and like the earth's crevice, your device is not gonna be able to be very expensive like our computers, right? So you're gonna to have to mass produce them. So uh, to be able to produce uh, exquisite cell-sized uh, robotic systems and you know computational systems with uh, this capability of scaling up and mass producing them is also a challenge. 
So how to integrate everything together at that length scale, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I would think, I guess you, you can't use traditional manufacturing methods. Maybe you'd rely more on 3D printing or chemical vapor deposition or you know, other methods where you can do things that, you know, probably learnings from the semiconductor industry would be tremendous here because I guess the average size of a transistor now on a wafer is nanometer scale. And they're doing tiny, right. tiny features. Yeah, is it right. possible yeah. that you could manufacture little robots just like you manufacture chips on a wafer or transistors on a wafer, you, you know, billions of them? And then right. you know, so, so uh, somehow it, chop it, it up is, the wafer and, and they go to work. Right. So, so uh, it, it is technically possible. You know, like there are many people, I think other groups elsewhere in the world who is trying to dice up these silicon chips and uh, into very, very small segments. And uh, um, and I do see a, a huge potential in doing that. I think, you know, it's a promising field. Uh, one challenge associated with that is, a lot of our conventional materials does not take up the challenge uh, because they're optimized for, I mean, they're incredibly small, but they're optimized for processes that are uh, operated on a macro scale. So computers actually do not work very, very well, uh, you know, if they're diced up into tiny segments like that. And uh, in the material science field, uh, people are working very hard to develop novel materials that are more accessible uh, to us at that length scale to function sort of autonomously on their own. Uh, and uh, some of these examples, you know, are like two-dimensional materials that are electronically just as good as silicon, but they are a lot more air-stable and uh, uh, sort of they can interact with the environment in a more precise manner than silicon. So yeah, so the short answer to the question is, I think um, there's a lot of merit of the current standard of the semiconductor industry uh, and I think uh, if we can also leverage the utility of the novel materials with these traditional, uh, more uh, established techniques, I think we can make a lot of progress. So what's the uh, first type of application that you're going for? Are you targeting really specifically or are you just, you know, what stage are you at? Have you made robots? Are they being used in a certain application? Right. So just within the past uh, year, uh, 2018, we published two sort of landmark papers, one in nature nanotechnology, one in nature materials. And uh, uh, both of them are uh, two iterations of what we think could be the prototypes of these cellular uh, electronics or robotics systems. Uh, and uh, for both of them, uh, we actually have two different, slightly different uh, target applications that have already been demonstrated. So one of them, the earlier uh, nanotechnology one, uh, was on uh, what we call uh, aerosolizable electronics. So these are, um, because you know the size of these uh, uh, computational systems are so small, uh, they can be lifted off in solution and then later uh, nebulized into, into the air in terms of a, to be embedded in a, a droplet of water. So they're, uh, they can be aerosolized. And uh, then uh, what we actually did was to uh, send these aerosols within a pipe and then they can travel in the pipe sort of with the airflow because they're very, very light uh, and uh, they can detect the chemicals that is inside the pipe. Not only can they detect different chemicals, they can actually respond also to light. So they can sort of do a very simple uh, logic computation, sort of like an end gate. So you can see light and the chemical and when they come together, it will record in this one bit memory that is on board. So it's sort of like uh, basically with this type of device, you were able to see after the fact whether your robot has seen the light or uh, the chemical. So that's 
the very first demonstration we did with uh, this is like what we call aerosolizable electronics. And then later on in the later uh, Nature Materials paper, um, robotics, and uh, there uh, the applications we demonstrated were to instead of launching, well, they can also be launched in, in the air, but they can also be launched into the water body. So like uh, they will travel in the fluid and uh, detect different various chemicals. They can respond to magnetic field. You can gather them and distribute them as well. And um, specifically, I think what we did was uh, through the soil matrix, we can detect nutrients that are good for the plant and bad for the plant. And so like for example, I think specifically we detected like gold nanoparticles, which are heavy atoms, uh, heavy metals that are traditionally thought to be bad for vegetations and plants, and also zinc cations, which are thought of as a nutrient for the plant. So we can uh, sort of deploy these robots. They can detect these chemicals. They come back. We can then query them electronically or optically. Well, both actually electronically and optically, what they have seen. So, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Again, how far along are you? Have you created, you know, for instance, the aerosolized, uh, you know, microbots, and have they been tested in application and worked? Right. So uh, basically, these three uh, applications that I just discussed to you about are the extent to which we uh, uh, sort of have published, and uh, you know, like we really want to talk about, uh, sort of restrict the the discussion within the the realm of stuff that we have already published about, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so far, I mean, like, they, they, they have been fabricated and they have been launched inside a con, uh, sort of a confined space because we don't want to really get into the discussion of, you know, whether it is safe to, to have them flying all the way through the air, right? So, like, uh, in, they're in principle uh, aerosolizable, um, meaning that they can be aerosolized. Um, that, that's um, actually but, what I was going to ask you is, um, you know, there's there could be a danger with these kinds of things, but there also could be at some point a lot of pollution. You know, just like we're you know polluting uh, the orbit around Earth with all kinds of satellites and junk and everything. You know, what happens if enough companies or ventures do this kind of thing and we have you know nanobot pollution? And what would that do, for instance, to if that stuff built up in the human body because it was in the air or in the water or yeah. you know, I mean. You know, I, 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 what I happened with the accumulation of that stuff, you know? Of course, of course. I, I think these kind of ethical and uh, environmental considerations are very valuable, uh, and it certainly should be brought into the discussion for, you know, policymakers or, you know, even scientists such as we are when we're uh, fabricating stuff like that. But I do think, you know, it, it is the uh, as responsible sort of manufacturers, you know, stuff like that, uh, oh, we should make sure uh, that there's a way to clear these things out if you're going to inject them in. Uh, that's sort of our view about this. You know, if, if they should only be using the in a manner that is controllable. And uh, of course, I think for any technology, there's a risk of, for things to be, you know, getting out of hand if they're not being applied and used in a, a responsible manner, right? And But also that should not stop the uh, the progress of, you know, making incredibly small robotic and electronic systems that are potentially really beneficial and revolutionary for the field of, you know, exploratory environment and, and medicine. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what have you noticed um, in the, uh, you know, the aerosolized bots in a pipe solution mm -hmm. and some of the other solutions you've worked on? Any unexpected outcomes? Honestly, not really. I mean, I, we uh, uh, anticipated a lot of the the very reason of us launching them into these pipes 
is for them to be, uh, you know, sort of contained. And uh, a lot of the outcomes have been accounted for. Uh, so what happens was that the uh, sort of uh, what we call colloidal electronic systems are uh, aerosolized and they are launched within the pipes and they travel with the airflow. And we always have this thing at the end to block it. So what normally happens is that they will just travel and then they will adhere to the surface that we use to collect them. And then we can take that out and query them using further down like electronic probing and or optical measurements and stuff like that. So uh, what we have found out, you know, scientifically, they are incredibly accurate and uh, they are able to perform the tasks that we have prescribed them to do, such as the simple computations that I was talking about. And uh, right. Yeah. So they behave extremely normally. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, what interesting things did you learn from uh, using the nanobots? You know, what did you see that you hadn't seen before by having them flow through a pipe? Or is it just proof of concept to see if you can get any data? Uh, I mean, currently, you know, the studies we are having are still in the proof of concept stage. Uh, but as a graduate student, I've learned, uh, you know, a tremendous amount from uh, this experience of making these, you know, I think people are wants to call them nanobots, but uh, what we call colloidal electronics. but um, these are just names. There are many things I didn't realize before I, after, you know, performing the work is I appreciate how much energy that we're lacking at this microscopic regime. You know, like we have energy crisis here and there in the world every day on a global and macroscopic scale. But if you actually want to power something, uh, you know, at the cellular level, it's actually incredibly hard. So, and no wonder, you know, biological systems went to chemicals because, you know, Chemical structures are incredibly energy dense uh, versus uh, if you look at the energy density of our current electronic systems, if you use the cell, like the battery used for cell phones, they're going to be depleted uh, at the cellular level within a fraction of a second uh, at the rate you're using them for. So what I have learned, uh, I guess, you know, after uh, several years of working with this stuff is one of the most valuable lessons was that we should change our thinking uh, of these small systems, uh, even though we want the modularity that our modern electronics can bring. But what we really need is a, a, a different paradigm of thinking uh, of the energy source and how to harvest the energy at a microscopic level in order to power the electronic functions and optical functions that we want these robotic systems to do. Uh, and uh, I think this is a valuable lesson uh, that the sooner we realize as a whole field, the better. And uh, it will be more beneficial uh, for us to reach this holy grail of nanotechnology, which is to create useful microscopic systems that can eventually, you know, be used in our daily lives. Yeah. Well, with cells, you know, remember, sure, they're small and all that, but they're continuously getting energy from their su supporting systems, you know, circulation, yeah, et cetera. Right. So, Even yeah, single-celled so organisms, they're constantly hunting for food. So it's not right. like they have all this stuff on, all this energy on board that will keep them going for hours or days yeah. or weeks. You know, they have a lot of fundamental yeah. limitations too. And, you know, what I didn't hear from you is like some of the trade-offs, you know, okay, sure, we can't store a lot of energy on board and all that, but a tiny robot wouldn't need much energy to move, you know? So what about some of the trade-offs that make this uh, even workable? Sure. Yeah. So another thing that I guess, you know, that is a new realization for, for myself was that at a microscopic scale, um, many things that uh, sort of function in our world at this sort of normal length scale doesn't apply. For example, um, if your electronics is as small as a biological cell, 
it actually do not need a lot of energy to locomote, you know, sort of translate in space because it can tag on to the fluidic environment that is around it, sort of like exactly what red blood cells do. There's no, if, you know, if, if your blood is moving towards the east, there's no way for you to actually drive your cells towards the west unless you're making some sort of rockets on, on them or something like that. Um, so even though the physical laws remain the same uh, throughout the different uh, length scales and dimensions, the relative strength of different forces actually change. Uh, if you look at how they scale with the length of the system, for example, surface tension and uh, a lot of the surface area uh, related forces are a lot stronger than the forces we use to typically in the macroscopic world to translate a, a system. And uh, yeah. in terms of uh, what you were talking about is the, the trade-off of an electronic system, a human electronic system, artificial system versus a, a biological system. Uh, there's a great lesson there too. A lot of the stuff we build into our computers and cell phones are highly modular and they are programmable and uh, you can sort of unplug a hard drive, even if you want a larger one and just plug it right in. But a lot of the stuff that biological systems or actual material systems that chemists build are not that modular. So this is actually a whole vision that we have created using these colloidal electronic systems is that we want to combine the benefit of an electrical engineered uh, sort of electronic system with a typical material science system. You can combine them in a modular manner, sort of um, building material modules for an electronic circuit. Because what the material modules are good for, if you think about it, is that they're incredibly energy efficient. A lot of things sort of just comes for free, um, but they're super dumb and you can't really unplug a portion and just have the system work uh, as usual. Sort of giving you a, a simplified example, if I had a, uh, a, a microscopic particle, it's just a sort of a, a gel bead or something like that, that is responsive to pH, you know, solution pH, like uh, acidic or basic environment. Right. If you think about it uh, modularly for a pH swellable particle, um, it's actually incredibly complex because this particle needs to have a sensor that is, you know, detecting the pH of the solution. And it has to have a comparator to compare its native pH state versus the current pH state. It has to make a decision on whether it will swell or not. And the swelling uh, itself is an actuator. So if you want to have an electrical engineer to engineer a system that behaves as well as a pH swellable particle, then it's incredibly hard. And you're going to have a lot of energy harvesting devices or energy storage device on board that will you know take up a lot of space and your particle electrical engineered particle is not going to behave as well as a pH swellable particle but what is valuable about the electrical engineering approach is that if tomorrow if you had constructed a pH swellable particle with you know sensors and comparators and actuators and tomorrow you come to me and you want to construct a let's say nitrogen or oxygen swellable particle, then it's incredibly easy. You can just unplug your pH sensor and plug in this oxygen sensor. And suddenly you've got yourself an oxygen swellable particle. But if you go to the material scientist and ask him to make another oxygen swellable particle, he's probably going to have to, you know, uh, review his math and go back to the drawing board and reconstruct the monomer of the polymer and build the whole thing from ground up. So there's this sort of incredible... Uh, synergy that exists between what is currently known as uh, electrical engineering versus, you know, chemistry and material science. And we can bring them somehow together and construct a material system that is both 
energy efficient and integratable, uh, and also at the same time, very much modular. Uh, this is essentially what we're hoping to do with sort of a bigger vision of this coil electronics and outlook of the whole space. Uh, and a lot of them, I think, is we think it should be enabled by uh, these next generation electronic materials that has the, really the benefit of uh, both worlds. They can operate at the expense of extremely uh, little energy, but also uh, right. they, they can be plug and played uh, into a, a more traditional electronic circuit that can be designed and reprogrammed and stuff like that. Yeah, that's interesting. You wonder if they need to do their job and then come back home and dock with a larger structure right. in order for yep. them to, you know, in order for yeah. them to be effective. That's that's really interesting. Any right. last that's comments cool. about the forces that are amplified at those scales and the forces that are diminished versus at larger scales? Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, if you think about forces in general, there are these uh, surface-related forces, and there's also uh, these um, forces that relate to gravity. You know, like F equals ma type forces, and uh, uh, it's the scaling of the force uh, differs incredibly. And actually, you can show mathematically at the nanoscale or micron scale, um, there is an inversion of the uh, of the uh, uh, importance of these different type of forces, uh, these inertial related forces like F equals MA stuff uh, is actually less important than these surface driven forces at the micron scale. Whereas in our current daily life, that's not the case, right? Because if you have some like surface tension is a lot less important than uh, the weight of something. But uh, at the nanoscale, uh, things are inverted. And uh, uh, one example, you know, Professor Michael Strano likes to tell us uh, is that graphene, which is, you know, this two-dimensional uh, carbon lattice, uh, they're actually incredibly sticky. They're kind of like the sticky tape we have uh, in our current macroscopic world. If they're folded onto each other, they're never going to separate. So it's like a duct tape. So uh, things behave a lot more differently at the micron scale, sort of a lot of things are um, uh, surprisingly sticky. And the implication of that, of the surface-driven forces being so important at the microscopic scale, is that if you want to build a robotic system uh, at the micron scale, you never, and, and you want this thing to be able to grab uh, stuff. And it's anti-productive to build them in the shape of a human hand. Like a lot of the mechanical systems that we have today uh, does not really work. And the nanoscale. So uh, what you you've seen, you know, in commercials or online pictures uh, or you know movies and stuff where people construct the nanobots, um, they have these uh, very mechanical-looking shapes and just look like a shrinked uh, robot today uh, at the macro scale. Is I think you know it will be anti-productive to build uh, systems that way at the nanoscale. Uh, and uh, I think the in the future. Uh, the nanobots, as we call it, uh, would look very different from a macroscopic robotic system. Yeah. If you want to make something to grab onto something, you would not construct a hand or, you know, a, just a mechanical grabber. It, you, you will be much better off considering to use the adhesion force if you can chemically or electronically turn on and off some sort of adhesion force. It's going to be a lot more productive than, uh, you know, a robotic hand. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting, the differences. Very cool. Right. I'm yep. glad you got those insights. I think they're going to be super useful, that and emulating nature or at least living systems, you know, uh, right. because those uh, those things operate at those scales and there's a reason why they're effective at those scales. So 
Yep. Very good. Yeah. So what's the best way for uh, folks to learn more about, uh, you know, again, for lack of a better word, nanobots and the lab itself and, you know, maybe to get in contact or read papers that uh, have been put out? Oh, yeah. So, uh, again, you know, we're located at MIT Department of Chemical Engineering and uh, the principal investigator's name is Michael Strano and we have a website. Uh, so, uh, you know, any folks that wants to get in touch with us, you know, should email to uh Stranel at mit.edu, for example, is this email address for the professor. Uh, and, uh, you know, feel free to visit our website and, and get in touch with us, you know, via emails and online links and stuff like that. And our papers are all published and links are provided on the website. Yeah. So, okay. I think. Well, very good. Well, Albert, thanks for coming. It's been a yeah. really interesting yeah. call. Learned some new stuff. So, sure. thank you yeah. for being here. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure. Yeah. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.